Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of CJ and the Duke. As always, I am your co-host, Robert the Duke Fedoric. And I am Corey, CJ Wesley. And today we are going to talk to you about sacred cows. And we know we have a lot of listeners in India, and so we don't use this with any disrespect. Sacred cow is an idiom in the West that we use to describe concepts that are unassailable, unimpeachable, things that you are not traditionally allowed to challenge or harm. So we are talking about all the sacred cows you might experience when implementing or maturing service now. And trust us, there are quite a few of these things. We run into them uh, on a daily basis and you find yourself banging your head up against a brick wall sometimes because commonly held preconceptions are not always best practices. That's right. And this kind of goes along with the theme of CJ and the Duke that there's very few hard rules. There's only postures and how you approach rules and when do you make exceptions to those rules. So a lot of these things will feel like we're attacking good ideas and That may be so, but there's going to be times where you're going to have to do that. The hard and fast rule of what I take to any client is just don't paint yourself into a corner, right? You always want to have multiple options. You always want to be able to give your client the best one. And sometimes that means taking, you know, somebody else's best practice advice and ripping it to shreds in order to find best practice advice for your particular client. And that might sound, you know, counter to conventional wisdom. But again, this is the sacred cows episode. Yeah. And it's where innovation happens too, right? Absolutely. We're going to start off with a favorite of mine. If you've been following me in the space for any amount of time, this probably won't come as a surprise to you. Sacred cow number one, categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories and tertiary subcategories and quaternary subcategories and sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-s
what reports, what decisions need to be made because of that data? And is it something you already knew? Like I had this Dave Caldwell, he works for ServiceNow in the training department, but he always told me, he's like, have you ever noticed that category reports tell us exactly what we already knew? Like, oh, oh wow. password resets are number one. We already see the amount of data that comes in. We already know that basically it comes in this distribution. So category trees don't tell us a whole lot. Well, that, that makes a whole lot of sense when you think about it, right? Because you define the category tree based on the data that you already have on your incidents. So you already know that a lot of people call in for password reset. So we need a password reset item in the category tree. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it absolutely does tell you what you already know, like the entire tree. You don't have a category option for something that hasn't come up yet. And right. what happens when it comes up? You add something to the category tree. And seriously, if, if your goal is to figure out out of the ordinary trends, like, let's be honest, man, like when is the last time you ran trending on categories specifically to see if there was that? But if you're if your goal is to figure out new trends that are hidden in the data, that's exactly a use case for the AI and the machine learning, right? Just get right. it to analyze every single word that's in the descriptions. And Absolutely. then you can get kind of like the aggregate. Like it's not just printers, it's just software in the printer in this time of day. It's just the AI is way better at doing that. Really simple use case for AI deployment too. And it's way better than making everybody in the universe pick a category and a subcategory. Anyways, I think we beat that one to death. Corey, hit him with the next one. Before we go there, I think just one last thing that I think is really important to mention. A category tree is a flat file versus like a CI being an object. There are multiple attributes on the CIs so when you're using that for categorization mm -hmm. versus, you know, selecting just a, a flat item from a category tree. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when you think about doing reporting there, it opens the door for multiple aspects of reporting when you're when you start reporting against objects versus reporting against flat files. Yeah. So, All right. Hit him with the next yeah. one. Going from there. Right. We're going to talk about everybody's second favorite C word, what? the CMDB. CMDB is a sacred cow. The CMDB is a sacred cow for a couple different reasons. One, you can't walk into a ServiceNow implementation without someone saying, give me a CMDB and give it to me now. Now, no one ever knows why they actually want it. They just do, right? Yeah. Because someone somewhere told them that they needed it. But that's not really why it's a sacred cow. The main reason a CMDB is the sacred cow is because the, the way the data gets populated is always shotgun style. We're going to load up Discovery. We're going to point it at everything in the enterprise and we're going to fire. And we want all of that stuff to come back into the CMDB and look as we impress management with all of these tables with data. And then what insight do you get from that data? What can you draw from the fact that you have, you know, 7,000 next hop records? Who cares? You know, what, what insight can you draw by having, you know, 1,500 DNS records, right? Like they might come in handy occasionally. Unlikely. Maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someday, you know, maybe, because reporting. I could take a report and spiffy it up and show you thousands and thousands of objects in your CMDB and, and hundreds of tables that have now been populated with a lot of data. And you're going to ooh and ah, and then you're going to call me back in six months and say, this data is meaningless. And I'm going to say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same boat. Like CMDB is a sacred cow. And I don't mean like CMDBs are bad. Don't do them. I totally don't mean that. It's just our approach to doing CMDB as a sacred cow, i.e. turn discovery on, or just this idea like I need a CMDB, make me one. So the metaphor I use <laughs> is a NASA shuttle launch. NASA's got hundreds of vendors working on building the shuttle, different people making the materials, different people assembling it together, different people doing the design of how it gets assembled together. 
And so you can't have somebody arbitrarily deciding, hey, the depth of this screw hole is going to be like an inch shorter because then the whole, like the whole thing might not work. So you have to figure out that's a proper, like I don't care what color the screw is, but I do care how long it is. And I do care how deep the hole is that it goes into. So those things I have to control rigorously everywhere. What I love about that metaphor is that everybody gets it. If there's something that's engineeringly wrong about this property, we may scrub the mission. Okay. Right. And then I tell them, but did you know that a space shuttle has one mission? How many does IT have? And then they kind of, then you can see the lights turning on. IT Absolutely. is way more complicated than a space shuttle. It doesn't do just one thing. It does a hundred, like you're adding new software every three months. So the sacred cow isn't have a CMDB. The sacred cow is what do you think the CMDB is for without specific mission statements Right. I'm going to track the server and specifically the version of the server because I have security compliance to keep up. If you don't have those specific use cases, then that's the sacred cow. The idea that just by discovering this stuff, it will someday be valuable. It won't. What I like to say is that a CMDB without purpose is just an MDB, right? It's just a management. MDB. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice. So when you think about having a... uh, a CMDB, make sure that you have purpose behind it before you build it and make sure that the the items that you place inside of the CMDB are things that are added with purpose that will be useful immediately and that you leave yourself room to add the things later that will be useful later. What other secret cows are floating out there? Notifications is one that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me tell you about notifications. Oh my God. Does anybody out here actually like email? No one that I know actually likes email, at least not on the scale that they receive it. Everyone wants the most amount of information and the least amount of transactions, right? Mm -hmm. And so that has to be your goal when you're building out your ServiceNow instance. What I hate to see and what we always, always do is spin up a ServiceNow instance, turn on all the notifications, Mm. throw groups in every notification, put individuals in the notifications, Right. And just send out just copious amounts of data to people and allow them to, you know, hey, look, we've got this great new system. See how many emails we sent you? These scenarios that people come up with. It was one of my first real events where I said, it's okay to say no. Right. It's it's okay to push back because I remember we spent a week trying to facilitate the incident manager's request to like have different mail lists, fixed mail lists for P1 versus P2 notifications. And after a week of troubleshooting why this wasn't quote unquote working, we found out that the two lists were exactly the same people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And it was like, it was working fine all the time. But I think the point is to ask the recipients what they'll do with those emails. And also, I'm not saying, again, notifications aren't necessary, but you take a team where they'll get like a ticket a week. Yeah, send those people the notifications. But you walk into any ServiceNow customer on the face of the earth and tell the service desk that they're going to get one more notification on assignment. (laughs) And you better have one foot in the stirrup, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Either that or they're going to nod at you and smile. And you know, if they nod at you and smile, you know what that means? They have blocked the ServiceNow email address. They oh, made yeah. a rule and they already have auto-routed all emails oh, from yeah. ServiceNow to deleted items. <laughs> yeah. We could probably have a show on notification best practices, I'll tell you what. 
I swear to you, you know, at least, you know, service now has kind of made this a little easier going forward where they have the opt out at the end, at the bottom of the, of the email. Now, if you opt to use that, um, right. That yeah. And don't forget about email digest either. We could do a whole show on this and we probably yeah. will. Yeah. All email right. hygiene, I swear to God. Yeah, <laughs> we we got to do it. So what else we got, Robert? Uh, we've covered uh category, subcategory tree, chop that one down. We've got the uh, CMDB. Okay, kissing cousin to notifications is inbound actions. It's kind of like right. notifications in reverse. Again, I'm not saying don't use them. I'm saying they're a sacred cow, which means you're infrequently able to challenge them. But I feel like, especially when it comes to service desk and incident management, inbound actions, some people think it's bread and butter. Like, let's make it so that the customers can email us. But yeah, it's fine. I got people emailing into, you know, our service desk. Let's create a ticket about that. Okay, I can buy that. But when the solutions start branching into, but if they include this, but not this in the subject line, I want you to automatically assign it to this assignment group. And then building huge amounts of business logic based on inbound email, sacred cow. Because what you're assuming is that people are machines Right. And that they send these things in the way you expect. It never happens. The only time that I say yes to any amount of complexity in inbound actions is when robots are sending the email. If it's people right. sending the email, I'm like, no, you're going to have one bucket. If they send to this email address, yep. it goes here. If they send to other email addresses, it goes different places. There's one other uh, option in there too that I like, and that's when the email is generated via a link, right? So service now sent a person a link that then they click on, which pops open a new email already properly formatted. And then they just click send. So uh, it's just yes. like a robot, but yep. not quite. By hitting reply, it pre embeds the things yeah. that the robot is listening for versus. Yeah, no, I'm totally down with that. So it's a small one, but it's still a sacred cow. And I constantly attack that sacred cow. You know, and yeah, but I don't think it's that small, Robert. Actually, when when you think about it, I think it might be small in terms of it's just as one little part of the system. But I think the inconvenience that it ultimately <laughs> generates for people in terms of maintaining this and tweaking it and 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 adding additional attributes because it always scope creeps, right? Yeah. And the longer this thing lives, becomes a massive complexity and a massive pain in the butt. It, it spaghetti codes really quickly, right? Because all yes. conditions and actions are in script. And they're in scripts of different inbound actions. So you can't even look at a list of inbound actions and determine what's going on. You basically have to open every single one of them, audit the code, document it somewhere just to get your arms around what's going on. If you're in a situation where you've got a bunch of inbound actions and you have a customer that wants to like these smartly forward stuff, let's figure out all the assignment logic that comes in via people inserting email. You're in for a world of hurt. I kid you not. I kid you not. There was an application with the acronym T-H-E at a client I work for. And oh I, they, they wanted an inbound action that says, if it contains T-H-E, it goes <laughs> did you. Did you just pack up and leave then? <laughs> Close it up and no. walk out. Yeah. In that case, that's kind of one of those cases where you're like, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Come on. That's inbound actions. And I think I'll just lead off with the next one is approvals. And there's always this assumed we got to get permission. And I always challenge this. It's like, when do we need permission? When are the auditors going to say, right. somebody had to say yes. When are the auditors going to say that? Not 
what does some book somewhere say we need an approval in there this for you got to think right. of what your auditors need and then you have to think about how people behave a friend of mine introduced me to this concept of the time to reject instead of thinking of approvals in terms of i need approvals from this team you could also think of it as like i'm giving this team x amount of hours days whatever to reject this change otherwise we're going to assume it's okay and then you capitalize on people's attention Meaning with approvals, you're assuming they're paying attention and taking action. In terms of changes where you're giving a time limit to reject, it requires attention, but it doesn't require action. Right. And it takes work out of the system. I love that. It moves the friction out of the system and it makes way for people to only take action when they need to take action. Yeah. If I know this will, as a change, this will be approved. If I don't do anything, then I'm, I'm more inclined to not do anything for this one. If I if I agree with it already, right? Yeah. Silent agreement. I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on the next item, which I might have a few issues with, and I want to get some comments going, and I want to get a little bit of discussion on before I make an approval or or rejection decision, right? So I'm gonna use my time windows wisely, right? Mm-hmm. It's gonna reduce the actions required by me, thereby reducing my work, and thereby also allow me to focus a little bit better and increase my productivity. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. From there, we move to the next item on our list here, and that's group-specific configs. I I love this one. Let me tell you why. There's the theory of the land rush. You kind of saw it with the California gold rush. You got a bunch of folks. They're all kind of migrating west, and they're looking for new land so they they can build out. And then with the California gold rush, right, gold was discovered. And all of a sudden, you got people from everywhere just kind of flooding the region. But somebody got there first. And that person or those people who got there first got to define how this thing looked for everybody else. Mm. But when you get that definition by a small group of people, you might have other small groups of people who come in and say, why are your opinions more important than mine? There are six of you. There are six of us too. We want to use this too. Let's Mm -hmm. do our own sort of thing here. And so now you got an incident uh, and you, you have two incident processes or you got two incident forms side by side and they're both doing the same thing, but they're configured a certain way, one for each, each group. Yep. And that's the pain. Like that's never going to work. It's not scalable. It's not maintainable. It's not manageable. It's not, no kind of a bulls, right? Like it's yeah. just, it is just impossible for that sort of situation to scale beyond the first two or three you know, the first two groups, most likely by the time the third one on your admin wants to shoot himself. Yeah. Right? Like I was, at, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was at a customer where it took literally, I'm not kidding, 40 hours of labor to add a new group to the system because ACLs were cracked open and all these different scripts were in place to make sure the incident behaved differently for every single team. I was like doing ACLs down to the group level for every single field. I was doing this is none of the stuff I designed myself, but kind of what I walked into. And I'm not saying like, you know, this never happens. You must never, ever put something group specific in, but your posture should always be one of like, you better make sure that this has extraordinarily amounts of value. I'm going to go ahead and say this. In a system like ServiceNow that is infinitely customizable and infinitely configurable, you should never do this. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no payoff. There will be something that will happen in the future. You're going to buy someone. You're going to get bought. You're going to quit and someone new will start. That group that had political power no longer has it now with a yep. new CEO. Yep. That group that didn't have any all of a sudden has re, uh, has uh, increased in prominence. And now they want specific things. You just need to set the standard from the very beginning. Everything's going to be at a certain base level. It's going to be scalable across 
for everyone to use, we're, we're not going to even utilize this sacred cow. We're not doing it. You don't get your own incident. Everyone has the same incident. Yeah, or problem or project or, well, project's different because they have that like team space concept. But gosh, I remember there was, there was a company I worked for that wanted it so bad. They're like, let's just do domain separation so that each group could have their own flavor of incidents. Like we're not even different companies. We're not even different customers. It's just like, you're that dedicated to just say every team does does it their own way. Every team of five in an IT department that's hundreds big, it's a sacred cow. And having been burnt very badly by that, I really resonate with this one. Yeah, think about that complexity. We're going to do domain sap just so we can all get our own incident form. Like, whoa. Everybody needs to just spin up a personal development instance, right? And just do some e-bonding. This is crazy. <laughs> Thank God ServiceNow had the swagger at the time. Because I remember we were there, the two dev architects and then the product owner who had more of a gun to his head about, oh, we have to have domain sap. And ServiceNow at the time, I think this was like Knowledge 11. <laughs> and we were talking to the domain sap team. And they're like, no, we're not going to do this for you. And they're like, but, 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 nope. Nope. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. So thanks, thanks. ServiceNow. Thank you for having my back on that one. That was a big help yeah. because domain separation would have totally just wrecked that shop. So bringing up the anchor of, of, the, uh, of the podcast here, right? The last on the list, the word yes. The client is always right. Like how many of you have heard that before? Mm -hmm. I think all of us have. Like the client isn't always right. They wouldn't hire you if they were always right. The, the client specifically hires you because they are not always right. And they need someone there to, to tell them when they are not right. You know, <laughs> I always say to my clients, and I've said this to every single one, you know, when we're talking about what ServiceNow can and can't do, it's not a question of if ServiceNow can do it, because it can. The question is, should we do it in ServiceNow? Mm -hmm. Once I give them just that one line, it's like the light bulb goes off in there. And it's like, wow. Like, you know, the angels, the hosts and it, you know, yeah. the singing, all of that. Right. And it tells you to frame the, the question in a different way. Look at the best tool for the job. You're not always right. We should not have, for instance, you know, a thousand notifications. We should not have this, you know, a, a customized inbound action for each one of 300 departments that we have internally. Mm -hmm. Right. Like these are things that we should not do. And they're relying on me as the consultant, as the guy who's the professional, as the expert, right, to tell them no instead of yes. I, I do still hate to say no. And I do resonate with the idea like the customer is right in some sense. They're right in yeah, some sense. Right. Yes. But if we go back to my Amish metaphor. And for those of you who don't live in the U.S., the Amish are a farming community that basically around the industrial era decided that they would, as a community, audit their tech exposure. And so they basically live a pre-industrial lifestyle in the United States. And so you walk into like Amish towns and people are driving like horse-drawn carriages and they don't use industrial farming. They use real like pre-industrial. Anyways. Yeah, they've opted you, out. Right. <laughs> but if you ask an Amish person, how do we get from Pennsylvania to Maine, they're going to be talking about the dimensions of the carriage they're going to need to pack all the food that they're going to have to eat along the way and where they can change their horses. And you'll be listening to that like, what? I'm not going to build that. Let's just take the airplane. We'll get to the airport in 30 minutes. We'll be in Maine in two hours. In that respect, the customer is right. We want to get to Maine. How are we going to get to Maine? 
and you Absolutely. don't have to you don't have to have their limiting beliefs about what the right way to get there is due to their fact that you know they're too busy being a vendor manager or an incident manager to understand the best way to build this in service now so we're provocative when we say the word yes is a sacred cow but really we're saying qualified yes and you you touched on something that's really important there too robert this is not their day job yeah, right <laughs> Right. Like this is a tool that they use to facilitate their day job. Right. They're not experts in service now. They're not experts in IT, most likely. They're asking you for your professional opinion in order to keep them out of trouble. And they appreciate it when they do. They appreciate it. If there is a better way, nine out of 10 times, they want to hear about it. They're just kind of like struggling to tell you like the pain they're experiencing. And you go to the doctor and you try and describe what's wrong with you. You're going to fill in the blanks that you think, right? I was reading online. It says it could have whatever. You're going to say that to your doctor. And your doctor is going to be like, oh, here's this Amish person trying to get to. <laughs> from- <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then your doctor is going to ask you a series of questions. <laughs> so this is just encouragement, guys. Be the guide. You know, be the guy down. Ask them questions about what they've asked for. Trying to get to the the itch behind the scratch. They're describing yeah. the scratch, but what they what they really need is their itch gone. Get those questions in and assault this sacred cow more than anyone because this is the one that covers all of them. That a good place to wrap up? Unless you want to, you want to hit this catalog items with all the questions. I like yeah. that one. <laughs> we, we, did have an, we did have an honorable mention, and the honorable mention is catalog items with all the questions. <laughs> Do not be afraid to resist is the wrong word. Challenge those catalog requests comes in it's like we just got to ask them these 84 questions and then we're done my general rule of thumb is if it has more questions in a mortgage application that stakeholder is going to email somebody the request absolutely like think i think of a catalog item as akin to a survey would i want to spend this amount of time filling out a survey Mm -hmm. and if the answer is no then the catalog item is too freaking long my rule of thumb with a survey is I don't want to spend longer than a minute filling it out mm-hmm. with a catalog item. I'm, I'm right around that same, that, that same place. And I definitely don't want to get up to go look for information for it. We can't, we can't give them all the answers or all the options up front. And we're requiring them to actually have to go ask someone to bring information to the task. We're doing it wrong. Yeah. With few exceptions. All right, folks. So I hope you learned a thing or two. I think the most important one there is the sacred cow of yes. Always have qualified yeses, man. Make sure you understand the itch behind that scratch and everything else will fall into place. This has been CJ and the Duke. As always, I am your co-host, Robert the Duke Fedoric. And I am Corey CJ Wesley.